Welcome to the Capital Light Assembly Podcast, brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. Edison is your contract manufacturing partner focused on Capital Light Assembly of complex mobility and energy products. Joined today by a very special guest, Gabriel Shear. Gabriel, thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brendan. Yeah, this this will be a lot of fun. I think your your background, the work you're doing at Elemental, we've you know obviously chatted a, a few times, and I, I love watching what, you, what you're doing, the impact you're having, the purpose behind your work, all of those things. I'm excited to explore some of the topics in the space with you. So, would you mind kind of setting the stage? Can you introduce yeah, your, yourself and the work you're doing at Elemental? Yeah, happy to. I currently lead the mobility and energy portfolio at Elemental Accelerator. We are a nonprofit climate tech accelerator based in Honolulu, but operating globally. We invest in companies across a wide spectrum of things. The ones that touch, obviously, what you and I are talking about are in the mobility and energy sector. But we also invest in food and agriculture, water, industrial or or circular economy, and nature-based solutions. So really huge spectrum of things. We've been around for about 14 years and have invested in something like 150 different companies and over 115 projects in that time. So a lot of interesting activity, a lot of fun things to do. Uh, in my current role, I get to both work with existing portfolio companies and then also look for and recruit new companies, which is our pipeline. We currently have our applications open for this year, which is really exciting. You can drop the, the link in there for your listeners. Uh, but very excited to see what new companies we have come in. I mean, I think climate is obviously a, a huge battle that needs to be fought across every front possible. And so I'm super excited to see the entrepreneurs working on solutions uh, and the solutions that come in this year. Yeah, a quick, quick plug. If you're looking for funding, I, I definitely would recommend checking it out. I've had nothing but positive experiences with Gabriel Elemental, Daniel Harris, talking talking with with her. Uh, the co- portfolio companies you guys have, all, all I'd definitely recommend it if you're listening to this and, and looking for um, some opportunities. But so the, the topic at hand here, and the thing that I'm very curious to pick your brain on, right, is the scaling aspect, right? So going from a prototype, a proof of concept company founders, yeah, they do the work, they develop something, they find fit in the market, tremendous, tremendous accomplishment, they they have a need to go and build something. Specifically, let's talk about something with a hardware element. And now they need to take that next step of going from one to 10 of something to beyond that, whether it's dozens, hundreds, low thousands of something, whatever. What from your experience goes into making that transition well? Or what are the key questions, the key things you're looking for when you're talking with people in your um, portfolio companies and such as they make that transition? That's a great question, and it is such a huge one. You know, for a little background for your listeners, uh, I'm currently at Elemental, as we talked about previously. I've been in a number of roles, in particular in micromobility, I was on the founding team at Lime and helped build that company and then also worked with Super Pedestrian and Spin. And so obviously all three of those companies are hardware companies. I also worked with Drone Seed, which is now rebranded as Mass Reforestation, but they do heavy lift drone swarms for reforestation. Again, a hardware thing. In, I guess, my experience across all of those, a key challenge you face, to your point, when you're going from a prototype to scale, well, there are lots of them, right? Uh, One of them is supply chain. Who's building it? Where are they building it? Do they have access to the resources needed and so forth? I think some of the things I've seen that have gone really well is when you have a key pulse on that. So if you're the CEO or if you're the the leadership team, how deeply ingrained are you in your supply chain? Are you building it yourselves? Are you building a factory here, wherever here may be for you? Or is this something you're outsourcing and offshoring and, you know, pulling in from somewhere else? And if you're offshoring, I would suggest the the companies I've seen do the best at this have a deeply ingrained person or group of people in the place that they're offshoring. So if it's in China or India or wherever it may be, 
having a team there local who speaks the language, and I, I mean that in every sense, speaks the language, actual language, but also sort of the metaphorical, you know, understanding the culture, understanding the key pieces. I've seen that go very well because it gives you insights that you wouldn't have on both your own operations and your own supply chain, but also into competitors potentially, seeing what else is happening, uh, being able to respond more quickly to supply chain challenges. For example, as everybody knows, in the last couple of years, the bike industry has gone through crazy gyrations up, down, and all around, in which suppliers at some cases were saying, well, we won't have parts for these bikes until the end of next year or the year after. So if you're an e-bike manufacturer and you're trying to build you know, build out your brand as an e-bike company and you can't get a derailleur or a chain or a whatever you know, for a year, that's you in trouble, right? So having somebody who's agile, who can reach out to different suppliers and have access into those different suppliers to get access to the resources you need to build is critical. So I think on-the-ground presence, if you're out, out, you know, outsourcing or offshoring, is, is a very important thing. If you're building locally, then you've got a different set of challenges to think about. Do you have a, a well-trained workforce that you can, you can put on this? So, for example, if you're going to site a factory, siting it somewhere where those skills exist. You know, if I was building right now a renewable energy-oriented company that was a hardware company, I would look at places where the oil and gas industry already has been and is because you have a lot of workers trained to do some of the things you'll probably need. To give a couple of examples, you know, in our portfolio, we've got a company called Fervo. They do geothermal energy, and they are essentially repurposing not only technology and ideas from the oil and gas industry, but also the jobs. They're creating new jobs for people whose training is perfect for oil and gas because they were trained by and for oil and gas, but who are now also perfectly trained for geothermal. The amazing thing about that to me is you got to think about the workers, too. we got to think about the people side. Uh, a final thing I would think about, and something that I'm seeing in some of the portfolio, or the, the pipeline companies, rather, is... There are business opportunities right now in replacing some of the people that we don't have to do the jobs. So one of the bottlenecks, I think, in the renewable industry in general right now is workers, contractors who can install heat pumps or who can build the things you need. So I'm seeing some companies coming now who are saying, well, we're actually taking that step out. So if, you know, heat pumps is a great example, actually. If you've had a heat pump installed, you know that it's a complicated process because every house is unique. You've got to have someone come in, figure out where the pump goes, where the furnace base goes, you know, got to drill into different things. You have to have electricians, etc. All these people. Well, if you could simplify that and say, here's a heat pump you can install yourself, so much simpler, right? That's not to say that that's going to be the solution for everything, but I think there are business opportunities in figuring out, will there be a trained workforce? And if not, what can I build instead? Yeah, that's unexpected i would say in that so i asked that question on what goes in scaling and pretty much the oversimplifying but it's relationships and people are is, is more or less the answer that you just gave there which yeah that certainly is not intuitive for me and i would i would imagine for for others as well and it's it's actually really interesting in that so edison the company we're building we're very people's focused values focused we also happen to be a manufacturing company and i've convince myself that those are, are nicely tied, but I guess as as you're talking about it and the examples that you're, you're giving here, like, yeah, there's maybe at a fundamental level, this is important, especially given that we rely and believe heavily on manufacturing that does not use huge automation and robotics, the type of faces that we're playing in. And I think general, and maybe can you speak to that point? I think generally this this step here doesn't rely so much on, on automation, but can you speak to kind of how, you, how you've seen that play out or where where it is that people are coming in and manual labor versus where automation makes sense or what that staged approach might look like? 
Well, I guess if you're talking about the the manufacturing side, in other words, making the things in the first place, I think that the shortage we're seeing, again, across renewables is going to manifest in a lot of different ways. So I think there is need for both of the things you just touched on, which is people making things and also automation. Um, I think about automation a lot when I think about installation of things. So a lot of the transition requires going into people's houses or living spaces and changing things. The more you can make that self-service, the better. The more you can make it so I don't need to hire a person because you know the more you roll trucks, the more expensive it gets, right? The more you roll trucks, the harder it is because you have to schedule and that can get challenging. And ultimately, that also means hiring people who may not be there. We need more electricians. We need more contractors. If we don't have them, your heat pump can't get installed in the current scenario. So I think, again, there's a business opportunity in and there's a challenge around automation. Flip side is we're going to need people for a while longer to do a lot of things. Um, there are things that are complicated, and th those require brains to come in and show up. They require you know people with tools and knowledge and skills to actually do those either manufacturing side jobs or installation type jobs. I think that one of the things we'll see with a lot of the renewables is we are going to have to build new transmission capacity. We're going to have to install new renewable sites. We're going to have to change how we think about infrastructure, and all of that requires people to do jobs. So I don't see it as a binary sort of do we automate or do we have people. I think that all of these things are the yes ands. A interesting business opportunity from my perspective is training people, is workforce development. In particular, you know, Van Jones was talking about this, what, 20 years ago, the idea of green jobs. How do you give people jobs that both help the climate or you know, help fight climate change and create meaningful on-ramps to real opportunities for people? And so I, I still think, here we are 20 years later, that is a tremendous opportunity uh, to, to build workforce training in the workforce of tomorrow. And any companies who can figure out, to tie your two ideas together, how to automate that, to train people at scale, I think that's a humongous business opportunity. So when you're looking at what you're doing now, the things you're building, the people, I don't see it as binary. I think it's both things. We need automation because we don't have enough people to do the jobs. We also need people and we need them trained and we need to give people good job opportunities for the future. Yep. hundred percent aligned there. That makes a lot of sense. And another area I want to dig a layer deeper. So you mentioned there's this decision point, right? For a, for a founding team to determine are we going to become a manufacturing company as well? Are we going to build things in-house or are we going to work with a partner, whether that's onshore or offshore or whatever? What in your mind or what have you seen are the most important questions to be asking? Is that purely a dollars and cents ROI question? Is this a question of focus or what, what, what is it that goes into making that decision? There are so many things that go into that. You know, if you look back at the early days of shared scooters in cities, uh, there was a lot written publicly at the time about who was using what brand of scooter off the shelf, right? And in the early days, it was Okai and Segway and a few other brands that were making the scooters. And I think one of the things that Lime did really well was we outsourced, but we maintained very careful control over the outsourcing. And so we designed the vehicles ourselves, scooters, bikes, all of that, and worked with partners to produce them. One of the things that gave us was the ability to iterate really quickly. You know, there, there would be different kinds of scooters in any given city at any given time. You might jump on a scooter in LA and your part, the person next to you jumps on the same Lime branded scooter, but it's a different manufacturer. And the thing that that gave us was the ability to learn quickly. What works, what doesn't, how do we quickly iterate and fix the things that go wrong? So as you think about things, I think that's a key thing is how do we 
build the best thing. We we share risk across lots of manufacturers. Same with the support the supplies and parts aspect of things. Like this manufacturer can't do it because they're lacking something. Let's partner with another one and see if they can. So I think that gives you a lot of ability to control and experiment and test. And especially in a hardware game, you know, testing can get really expensive really fast. Depending on what you're building, you may not have the luxury of building you know, giant versions of something with multiple different vendors. So I think one of the things you consider is, is this a thing like that where it's a consumer-facing product, we're building lots of relatively small things, or is it a giant thing, in which case we need to control every aspect and we need to be very careful about sourcing. Maybe we build it ourselves or maybe we outsource, but very carefully, versus we're going to deploy a whole bunch of things, units of whatever, we can go at scale, test lots of things at once, learn lots of things at once, try different things across different vendors, and ultimately settle on something that works really well. And that settling may still be, we bring it in-house, or maybe we keep it outsourced, but we've focused on these vendors because we know they're good at doing what we need them to do. But I think that testing is really good. Uh, some of Lime's competitors in the early days were using off-the-shelf off stuff, which, you know, at first we kind of did too. Um, but using off-the-shelf stuff puts you at the whims of of other vendors, of people, you know, what they're making, and it gives them the chance to learn. I mean, if you look at what Foxconn is doing right now, it's very interesting, right? If they become the backbone for EVs, at some point they're a white-label EV manufacturer which controls a vast majority of the value chain. So, you know, if I'm Mazda, what's left? If I'm Toyota, what's left? I, I think there are some really interesting things to think about there as you're thinking about manufacturing and who owns what piece of the IP. Yeah, I mean, I mean, not that I've asked any necessarily easy questions, but maybe an even even tougher one. So maybe and somewhat self-serving, right? So we're in the contract manufacturing space, and I'd, I'd be curious from your perspective, what is required from a contract manufacturer to, to find now the, the other side of this equation, right? So the principles that we've thus far built this around is I mentioned. So it's it's Capital Light, the name of this podcast, and it's not necessarily saying that you should always be Capital Light, but for the specific applications that we're targeting, the hard to automate, the low volume, the high flexibility areas, we believe that a staged strategic intentional decision on a capital outlay is important. And we've built our entire culture around building true partnerships with our customers and being flexible and agile as, as products change. So that's so far become the things that we focus on. Abstracting that out, though, from, from your perspective, what what do you what have you seen from a contract manufacturer, or someone who manufacturing partner, that what it really takes for them to serve the needs of a founder when they are going through this journey and trying to you know, launch a, a product or enter a market? I think at the risk of blowing smoke, what you just said is exactly what we need. <laughs> like if you're if you're a startup and you're trying to iterate on a product, you want someone you can trust. And you want someone who can iterate fast, which is what you said you strive to build. Um, you know, we, it depends on what you're building. Obviously, there are some things where we build one and it's really big and really expensive and takes a long time. I don't think that's what it sounds like you're talking about. But if you're somebody who's building things where we've got to learn quickly, we've got to have lots of cycles, we need a trusting relationship where we can call you and say, hey, this isn't working. Or we need to tweak it to do this. Or how quickly can you switch the line to do whatever? Uh, so we need trust and we need agility, right? I think that the final piece there is when you think about startups, startups are inherently risky and dynamic. And by dynamic, I mean lots of sort of start-stops, depending on funding, depending on where our focus is, etc. And so I think the other attribute I would think for if you're thinking about working with startups is patience. You know, they need a trusted partner who can iterate with them and who understands, like, we are playing a long game. If we succeed together there's going to be huge opportunity and upside for a manufacturer, for example. If I'm the startup, though, like 
I may have lots of funding today and contract with you to do this thing. And then my focus shifts because I've got to go fundraise and I've got to raise whatever the tens of millions or whatever I need to raise. Can you stick along with us for the ride? You know, and so maybe that's creative partnerships, JVs, maybe it's equity stakes in companies because you want to play with them and you think they're the right potential partners for you. I think there are lots of ways that could go, but at the, at the basis is what you described, which is agility or, or flexibility or, you know, speed of iteration and trust. And again, I would just add to that kind of the patience component of, you know, knowing that if you're going to work with startups, it, it, it's going to be a, a wild ride and, and you get to be along for that. And that's exciting for some and it's too much for others. And so knowing, knowing where you fit is, is important there. Yeah. And the conversation of, Hey, here's this hockey stick demand curve, which that's great. I'm sure there's a bunch of great science that goes behind it and we're going to push for that. But at the same time, yeah, maybe that time frame is going to be hit. Maybe those volumes, maybe that slope's going to be hit. Maybe it's not. And we need to, yeah, we need to be on this journey. Yeah. The patience definitely is something that we've, uh, we're, we're learning and <laughs> definitely, uh, a key piece here. So I'd be curious to, to wrap up. I know we're, we're approaching time here. The, just generally speaking, I'd like to give you a chance here, clean tech, space, climate tech, um, what, what, what's your read or maybe even more importantly, what, what do you think kind of the, the public perceptions getting, getting wrong right now, or what, what's kind of the, the key message that you would try to get across from your perspective, where this industry is, where there's the need for focus, where there's the most exciting things going on. What, how do you think about that? That's a whole lot of questions in one, Brandon. Uh, I would say that, yeah, I mean, what's exciting is I think that there is both growing awareness of the urgency of the situation and the need for change. I think uh, I come to work every day and so inspired by the amazing founders that I see out there, you know, some of whom I get to work with and some of whom I don't. But either way, there are so many brilliant people trying to make a difference. And there are brilliant people trying to make a difference, not just in building successful companies, but in bringing along everybody, you know, making sure it's a just transition, whether you look at the IRA and some of the wording in that, or whether you look at companies who are simply trying to build a workforce of tomorrow based on the skills people have today and, and engaging them in this new sort of direction that people are going with renewables and with various other things related to the transition. I think that the the zeitgeist feels real. It feels like, you know, this is not a clean tech one boom or whatever that's going to fall off a cliff. Like, humanity sees that we are in serious need of change fast. Obviously, there are plenty of things pushing against it, but generally speaking, I see, you know, cup half full kind of world. And I think there's a lot of opportunity right now for, uh, for business, you know, creative startups, people creating all sorts of new things for people, making the world just better, uh, you know, reducing pollution, making life just work a little bit better. So I'd say, you know, to answer your question, the biggest of generalities, I think there's just a lot of really positive momentum right now, and I'm super excited to see it continue. I do think we will pass tipping points sooner and at some points later, where it just doesn't make sense to do things the old way anymore. You know, if you look at the levelized cost of energy globally for energy, renewables are pretty much starting to make sense everywhere. Um, that's great because once that becomes true everywhere, and once you know, once it's sort of understood that that's true, we'll stop worrying about coal or we'll stop worrying about some of these other things that have been great for society in the past but can't be the future. And I think that's that's just where we're headed, and I'm excited to see it go. Yeah, that's a great place to leave it. Well, thank you, Gabriel. Really appreciate you joining. If you're listening, looking for for funding, certainly I'll have the uh, have the link in the show notes here. Check it out. Give Gabriel a follow on LinkedIn. I think the yeah, content and the, the way you guys are thinking about things and approaching things, I I, I really enjoy. And uh, yeah, great talking to you. 
Thank you. You too, Brandon. Thanks for having me on.